0: We're in a series uh, in the, about the church. Uh, normally we work through books of the Bible, and that's our habit, um, expositing a text. In this particular series we are moving from text to text, though I do think I am still expositing those texts, in some cases larger sections, in other cases smaller sections. Um, and today we are going to be in John's Gospel. We've looked at the church Uh, through the lens of Peter and Paul, both in in, in two different epistles. We've also looked at the church through the lens of Matthew's gospel, then Mark's gospel, uh, then Luke's eyes, which was predominantly through Acts, since he wrote Acts. It was the best place to go to examine his theology of the church or understanding of the church. And then now we're going to examine uh, the church through the lens of John the Apostle as it's laid out and presented in the gospel that he wrote often just referred to as John. So, the title of this particular message, our series is The Church, A A Spiritual Community, and this is part six. The subtitle is The Church As It Was Meant To Be. The Church As It Was Meant To Be. And so, if you would, join me uh, in prayer as we uh, prepare to go to God's Word. Heavenly Father, your words are life. They cleanse us, they set us apart for your purposes, and so Lord, we ask that you would do that work in us, setting us apart for your very purposes, by the truth of your word, in Jesus' name, amen. Don't let this scare you, but we're going to look at John 13, 15, 17, and 20, those chapters, okay? No need to be scared, because we will do this all within the time frame allotted. In, in, in one Peanuts comic strip from the early 80s, Lucy is um, at her psychiatrist stand uh, with the sign up. The doctor is in, 10 cents. Um, Charlie Brown is standing there, obviously receiving counsel from her. And Lucy says, maybe I can put it another way. Life is like a cruise ship. To which Charlie Brown says, a what? A cruise ship. Some people set up their deck chair facing toward the back of the ship, where they can see where they have been. Other people set up their deck chair facing the front of the ship so they can see where they are going. What kind of person are you, Charlie Brown? To which Charlie Brown responds, I'm the kind of person who can't get his deck chair open. <laughs> <clears throat> I've, I've felt that way many times in life over a variety of things. When, when it comes to the church, some of us tend to look backward at what the church has been. Maybe it's bad experiences we've had. Maybe it's what we've seen in the world. And others look forward to what Jesus has called us to be, the vision that he's given us for what the church ought to be. In. And frankly, some of us see the, the, the vast contrast between those two things, and we, we can't seem to get our deck chairs open to figure out what to do with, with all of that. If that's you today, I, I hope you can find encouragement and hope in hearing what Jesus has called us to be without ignoring the reality of what the church often is. The church, a spiritual community, captures well, I think, how John paints the church. Uh, on the eve of Jesus' crucifixion, Jesus describes and emphasizes two repeated themes. The first theme that you see in the upper room discourse, what, what happened the night before um, he was crucified, is the coming presence of the Holy Spirit that was going to be in the midst of them. And then the second is the community which the Spirit would create. So when we say the church is spiritual community, we really could have taken that title right out of John's thinking about the church. So today in our text, I hope you'll recognize the church as that spiritual community. Now, in five messages, I could not exhaust everything John says in these chapters about the church. Um, Really, the second half of John, chapters 13 through 21, the first half, the emphasis is on who Jesus is, but the second half... While it is still on who Jesus is and what he does, the second half clearly turns the attention and the focus onto the church in many ways. Though in the middle of it, of course, you have the crucifixion of Jesus. Before that, you have the, the night before he was betrayed, and then the, the post-resurrection scenes following that. My goal today is not to cover everything John says, but to, to take the, the, look at this scene from the thousand-foot level. You know, not the 10,000-foot level where you barely see any detail, and not the 50-foot level where you see all the details, but the 1,000-foot level. We'll, We'll bob and weave with some details, but we want to get the big picture of what John is saying. In chapters 13 through 17, on the eve of his death, we see the church as it was meant to be. That's the looking forward, the church as it was meant to be. Following the resurrection in chapters 20 and 21, though we'll really only cover a couple of scenes in chapter 20, we see the church as it often is, the church as it often is. That's the looking back scene. So let's begin looking forward at the church as it was meant to be in John uh, chapter 13, and we'll begin in verse number one. We'll see the church as it was meant to be in three key places. The first is in Jesus washing, the second in Jesus teaching, the third in Jesus prayer. Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus teaching them about the vine and the branches, and then Jesus' prayer for the church in chapter 17. So those are the three places we're going to see the church as it was meant to be. First, Jesus washing the disciples' feet, uh, John 13, beginning in verse 1. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off or laid aside his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part of me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet. But my hands and my my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. Now, if your children ever try to use that verse to explain to you that they don't need a bath, yet, no, that's bad theology. That's not the point of what he's saying here. There's something bigger in mind. Okay, And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that was why he said, not everyone was clean. We'll pause there. Now, the story itself is familiar. Jesus gets up from the meal um, uh, and dressed himself as a servant. He takes off his cloak and he wraps himself with a towel. He dresses himself as the lowliest of servants. In fact, in the ancient world, foot washing involved washing off uh, not just dust and mud, but also the remains of human excrement, which was tipped out of houses into the streets. Animal waste, which was left uh, on country roads and town streets. The task was normally assigned to slaves or to servants of the lowest status, particularly females. One author says that foot washing was virtually synonymous with slavery. Virtually synonymous with slavery. Jesus takes off his cloak, dresses himself as that slave, and begins to perform the function of that slave. When he gets to Peter, Peter objects that his Lord uh, is acting in such a lowly manner. Jesus tells Peter that if he doesn't do so to Peter, then Peter will have no part with him. And immediately Peter does an about-face. He he wants the full body wash, so to say. and, and, And basically, I want more of you, Jesus. If that's what it does for me, then I want more of you. Jesus became a servant in order to cleanse us. That's clear. When Jesus cleanses you, you're clean. There, there are not differing degrees of cleanness. When Jesus cleanses you, you're as clean as anybody else in this room. When he forgives your sins, you're as clean as anybody. There are not differing degrees of clean. Well, I need to be more clean. I'm not as clean as that person. No. When he cleanses you, you're completely clean. That's good news. Amen. When Jesus serves us by washing our feet, he cleanses all of us. John writes this scene in such a way to make it clear that the act of Jesus disrobing himself and then reclothing himself, as we'll see in a moment at the the end of it, is also a picture of him dying and rising. Therefore, our being cleansed is clearly speaking of the forgiveness of sins. I mean, even the language that, that is used of Jesus laying aside his cloak and taking it up again, it's used in, three times in John chapter 10, verses 17 through 18, referring to Jesus laying down his life and taking it up again. So there, three times, I lay it down, I take it up, I lay it down, I take it up. Now we have him laying down his cloak and taking it up again, but it's a picture, this whole foot-washing scene is a picture of Christ serving us by going to the cross to cleanse us of our sin. Jesus has washed all of our feet when he served us by laying down his life for us. Now you might ask, I thought we were in a series on the church. What does this have to do with the church? Well, let's see, verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on or took up his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. Now, the first level meaning uh, is easily enough seen. We are called to be servants one to another. Okay? Jesus served us. Let's go be servants. That's easy. That's, that's, we can get that on one simple read. Therefore, well, backing up, if, if Jesus has humbled himself to the level of, of, of a lowly slave, we ought to do the same toward one another. Amen? To be served by Jesus means we are to serve one another. Now, the second level meaning gets us closer to the heart of the issue. Jesus served us by washing our feet and thereby cleansing us of our sin. To be served by Jesus is to have our sins cleansed and forgiven. And he did this by laying down his life. Therefore, when we forgive one another, we are washing one another's feet. When Jesus said, you should also wash one another's feet, he's talking primarily about forgiving one another. Of course, you know, if, if we serve one another in the most difficult way of forgiving their sins, we'll also serve one another in every other way, right? From the greater to the lesser. I mean, that's the greatest way we can serve one another. And if I'm not willing to serve you in any other way, then certainly I'm not willing to actually forgive your sin, which is the, is the most difficult form, of serving one another. But we are called, in this call, to wash one another's feet, we're not really being called to have some sort of special service once in a while where we actually wash one another's feet. Though that would be a fine way to enact and envision this. That's not what we're really being called to do. What we're really being called to do is what Jesus was really doing. Cleansing them by forgiving their sins, ultimately by going to the cross. And what we're being called to do is to lay down our lives one for another, most notably by forgiving one another. And thereby cleansing one another of our sins. Cleansing throughout this section is highlighted, and that's what is emphasized even, obviously, in the washing of feet. The greatest way we serve others, the greatest way we humble ourselves to the lowliest place is to forgive their sins against us. Now, the larger section, chapter 13 of the whole chapter, it ends with this in verse 34. John 13, 34 and 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must, also, uh, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So we are served by Jesus, that we might serve one another. We are cleansed by Jesus, that we might cleanse one another. The love of the church for one another is a huge testimony to the world about Jesus Christ. Amen? That's Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Now let's turn to Jesus' teaching. Jesus' teaching about the vine. And the branches, we see this in chapter 15, John chapter 15. We would turn there. And in John 15, well, really in verses 1 through 17, we have this, this whole account. But it begins in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. Well, every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes or he cleanses. Now, just a, a side note. It's it's a little play on words that we miss here. The word for cleanse that we saw in chapter 13 as well. We see it here in a moment. And the word for prune were the same word. It's just context. If it's an agricultural context, it meant prune. But it was also the same word for cleanse. And so there's a little bit of a play on that idea here because he's speaking of a vine and branches. So every branch in me that does bear fruit, he prunes or he cleans so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept the Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be Complete. Now, again, this is a familiar teaching in this case. But allow me to highlight a few things that might be a little less familiar, at least for some. Just as the account of Jesus washing the disciples' feet was about cleansing them, so too this is about the disciples being cleansed or pruned and being cleaned. Here, it is through the Word, the Gospel, that we are already cleansed. What Jesus accomplished in his death, by serving us in his death to cleanse us, chapter 13, he announces in his declaration of the gospel that our sins are forgiven. So his word, your sins are forgiven, that comes in the gospel, is effective. You're already clean by the word that I've spoken to you. His word is effective. This parable of the vine and the branches is about being joined to Jesus. But listen something I think we often miss, it's equally about being joined to one another. It is equally about being joined to one another. And let me make my case. Notice it is not, I am the vine and each of you is a branch. Or, I am the vine and you are a branch. No, it is, I am the vine and you are the branches. There's no such thing as a a vine with just one branch. It wouldn't live, right? I mean, a vine has many branches or a trunk has many branches. And it is you who are the branches. Once again, note, we show ourselves to be Jesus' disciples, not a disciple, by bearing fruit, which is somehow connected with remaining in his love, which has to do with keeping his command. So there's this connection here. I'm the vine, you're the branches. By being a branch, you're connected to the whole tree, which has other branches. Now you're going to bear fruit, and you're going to do that, somehow remaining in his love, and yet that has something to do with keeping his command, as we're about to say. And it all seems a bit, a bit vague until verses 12 through 17. Now, note in verses 12 through 17 that this paragraph begins and ends the same way. Verse 12, my command is this, love each other, or love one another, More better way to say it, as I have loved you. And then at verse 17, this is my, com- my command love each other or love one another. So let's go back to verse 12 again. My command is this love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know, what is, does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends for. Everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command, love one another. Everything in the vine branch parable leads to this conclusion in verses 12 through 17. Here, in verses 12 through 17, we find that the branches are also called something else. What are they called in verses 12 through 17? Friends. The branches are now friends. I've called you friends. But, but Jesus, Jesus lays down his life for his friends, but now those friends says we're to lay down our lives for one another, which means he expects us to be what? Friends too. See, we always read that. We say, yeah, Jesus calls me a friend. Yes, he did. That's wonderful. By the way, look around you. He called them your friends too. I I, I know I'm called to love them, but I don't have to like them. (laughs) What do you do with this? We need to embrace the fact that we're friends and that we're to lay down our lives one for another. That's what branches... Are called to do. We're, we're called to participate as one plant. I, I wish we could somehow go through all of our songs, and I, we can't. I, I get that. But, but change all the singular personal pronoun, first person personal pronoun, I, uh, me, my, to plural. Our, us. Because I think it would, would be a more accurate reflection of a biblical picture of worship. A biblical picture of worship. Darren actually did it naturally this morning. We're singing a song and it's all I, we. But when we're finished, he starts speaking of we and us. Because it's so natural for us to understand we are here together worshiping. We need to embrace the fact that we are friends, that we are branches of the same vine, that we are on the same plant. Loving one another as Christ loved us is how we obey his command and bear fruit as branches. So that's Jesus' teachings. We've looked at Jesus washing the disciples' feet, Jesus teaching about the vine and the branches. Now we're going to look at Jesus' prayer for all who believe. Jesus' prayer for all who believe. And that's in chapter 17, John chapter 17. Three things I want to point out or note from this prayer. First, Jesus is praying for the church. Jesus is praying for the church. Look at verse 20. My prayer is not for them alone. That is the apostles. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. Who's that? That's us. That's the apostolic church. Amen? Okay. So, his prayer is for the entire church. Second thing. Just to see Jesus washing and teaching. They were about cleansing the church. Now, this prayer... It's about something similar, but it's, it's about something a little different. It's about Jesus sanctifying the church. So, cleansing the church, chapter 13, chapter 15. Now, sanctifying the church, chapter 17. You might say, what's the difference? Well, I'll explain. Sanctifying the church, making the church holy, has to do with setting her apart for God's use or God's purposes in the world. Read with me in in, in chapter 17, verses 15 and following. My my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them. Make them holy, you could read it. Set them apart by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world... For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. Now that last line gives us a hint at what is meant there. Jesus did not cleanse himself because he was already clean, but he did sanctify himself. So there's a difference in meaning. Jesus was devoting himself, you could say, to the Father's purposes. He was willing to lay down his life and be totally used by the Father completely devoted, would be another way to say it, to the Father's purposes, sanctified, set apart. In the Old Testament, keep in mind that cleansing was, was very important to the whole aspect of their worship. They had to be clean or they had to go through a cleansing ritual. Why? Because if they were not clean, they could not participate, they could not touch or be in the presence of anything that was holy. So, cleansing has everything to do with being used by the holy or as holy, but sanctifying is that actual use. The root for sanctifying is the same as holy. To sanctify, we could translate it to make holy. To make holy. And so holiness, cleanliness is necessary, this spiritual cleansing, the forgiveness of our sins, is necessary that we might be used by God for His purposes. But that actual being set apart for God's purposes is sanctification. So there's, a, there's a, a, a subtle difference there, but an important one. Holy things were separated for God's use. Holy things are devoted to God. God cannot have unclean things. That's why in chapter 13, Jesus says, if I don't cleanse you, you have no part with me. It's the forgiveness of our sins that cleansing is. Having been forgiven... Jesus now uses his word, the gospel, the same gospel that told us our sins are forgiven. He now uses that gospel to set us apart from the world for for lives that are dedicated for God's purposes. So when we preach the gospel, yes, we preach the forgiveness of sins, but we also preach all those aspects of the gospel that dedicate our lives for the use and purpose of God. Then notice in verse 19 that Jesus is sanctifying himself. So his sanctification had to do with him laying down his life for us. Our sanctification has to do with God using us as we lay down our lives one for another. John's gospel shows a strong distinction between the church and the world. So how is this church that is devoted to God and one another, how is this church to reveal Christ to the world? How is this church to reveal Christ to the world? God will reveal Christ to the world through the church as it is brought to complete unity. God will reveal Christ to the world through the church as it is brought to complete unity. Look with me in verses 20 and following. My prayer, this is by the way the third point out of this prayer that we're looking at. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one father just as you and i are just as you are in me and i am in you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me i have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one i in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. How are we brought to unity? By serving one another, cleansing one another, forgiving one another, being friends with Jesus and one another as mutual branches of one tree. We're brought to unity. The progression from cleansing in John 13 and John 15 to sanctifying in John 17 shows that the unity that Christ has been calling for in the church is connected to God's very purposes for us and how he plans to use us in the world. Sanctifying the church, in other words, Jesus devoting the church to the very purposes of God in the world means that we will engage in God's primary activity for us, and that is that we may be one. That we may be one. It's, it's kind of like an equilateral triangle. And I, I base this really on John's epistle, where he says there are people who say they love God, but they don't love their brother. And he says, well, that's not possible. You got, if you don't love your brother or sister who's born of God, you, you can't say you love the Father whom you cannot, so you see them. So it's like an equilateral triangle. Imagine that triangle. No matter how big or small you make it, the angles remain the same, right? So... The closer we get to God, the closer we necessarily get to one another. The farther we get apart from one another, the farther we're getting from God. It's impossible to stay close to God and far apart from one another. It's not possible. We might deceive ourselves into thinking it is, and John talks about that in his epistle, that we're deceived if we think so. But we, we, we can only get as close to God as we are getting close to one another you understand what I'm saying there? Just think of an equilateral triangle. All the sides remain the same, so, and the angles remain the same. So the, it's, it's, it's really quite simple. Now, some would say, well, what about the mission? Won't we become too inward focused if we start thinking about we need to be unified and serve one another and lay down our lives for one another? Won't, we, won't the mission be forsaken? Well, we, we, we can certainly pursue others sinfully for our own purposes for what we want from them, for what we need them to be for us, and that will make us inward, and that will keep us from doing the mission. But that's not what we're talking about here. When we are cleansed by Christ and cleansing one another, not relating to them for the benefit we get out of them, but relating to them in compassion. When we are living in line with the truth, and we're not our own but joined to Christ and therefore to one another, we will not be too inward-focused. In fact, our very lives will be a practice of otherness. Our very lives will be outward in its orientation. And the world will be be attracted to what we have. They'll want what we have. Even if they don't want our Savior, they'll want what we have. It will capture their attention. They'll, They'll see something very real and authentic and they'll say, we need that. Well, there's only one way to have that. You can't have that as an unbeliever. You only have that. As a believer in Christ. Got to be on the vine to be connected to the branches. So in these three scenes, what I call the, the church as it was meant to be, Jesus washing, Jesus teaching, Jesus prayer, we discover what Thomas Brody said was the goal of what Jesus is doing in these the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 through 17 and that is to bring the individual disciple farther and farther into community, into some form of love and unity with other people, other believers, I might add. This is the church as it was meant to be. But is it often our experience? Is is it your experience? So let's look at the church as it often is. Now, next week, I'm... I'm going to look far more at the church as it often is and the actual experiences that people have. We don't have time this week to explore all of that. I just want to touch on two scenes here in John that relate to that. Now, technically, one might argue that the church wasn't born until the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And I'll say, fair enough, that's that's correct. But, but John isn't writing Acts. That was Luke's job. So John has to cram all his theology about the church into his gospel. So he's going to cram it in here. And so what we have here in these... Post-resurrection scenes uh, is what I'm going to call the church in the womb or the the nascent church. It's it's the beginning stages of the church. It's the not fully developed, but it's the church. Okay, and and John intends for us to understand it that way. In, in these first two scenes, we are actually uh, with, they're actually the second and third resurrection scenes. We're not looking at the first resurrection scene, but the second and third resurrection scenes. We discover that that they as well as in the first scene, that these scenes occur on the first day of the week, on Sunday. This is a hint. We, we should recognize this, is, this as the church, the resurrection community, gathering together as they begin to gather in an entirely new age. Everything changes with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so they begin to gather on the first day of the week, and that was the practice of the early church. And, and so the church reads John's Gospel, and goes, oh, that's us. <laughs> They're gathering together. It's the first day of the week. That's us. And and that's right, it's us. Each scene is different, yet in each, I want you to notice this. In each of these scenes, I want you to notice that when the church gathers, Christ imparts grace that cleanses the church. When the church gathers, Christ imparts grace that cleanses the church. In other words, gathering as a church is a gift of grace. Gathering as a church is a gift of grace. Note with me uh, first under the heading, a timid community. We're going to look at two scenes, a timid community and a doubting community. But look with me in verse 19 of John chapter 20. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. Willimon writes, here is one of the sorriest images of the church in the whole New Testament. In fact, it's a picture of the church at its worst. Yeah, that's uplifting, but it's true. What a picture. A church with the doors locked. I mean, you're going to really win the world that way, aren't you? Got the doors locked. The, the church that is going to reveal Jesus to the world, not taken out of the world, but protected by the Father in the world, is huddled up in fear of what might happen to them. That's all they contribute to the whole scene, fear. Well, and one more thing. They're together. That's the only two things they contribute. Fear and the fact that they're together. But that last one is enough. That's all it took for Jesus to bring them the grace they needed. And that will be proven in just a moment. That's all they needed to bring them the grace that they needed. He didn't even need them to unlock the door. He came and stood in the midst of them, and immediately their fear was transformed into joy. It tells us. They were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. So immediately that fear becomes joy. And momentarily, Jesus gives them peace. And then Jesus sends them on mission. I mean, look at these major things that occur simply because they gathered together, even despite all their fear. That's the basic definition of the church. The gathered community. That's what the actual word church implies. Gathered community. Assembled together. It's the fundamental meaning of the word. Now, there's something else they had in common with the churches it often is, and that's that some were missing. Some were were missing, and we'll notice in a moment that the one who was not gathered with them did not receive the grace that the others received. That's why I say that the only thing they contributed was significant because it, it at least put them in place for the grace that they did receive. And that leads us to a doubting community. Read with me in verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, that means the twin, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Absence from the community leads to doubt and unbelief. Absence from the community leads to a variety of doubts and a whole lot of unbelief. We, we, can't, we can't remain absent from the community and stay in faith. It just doesn't go together. Thomas' doubts were not so much about whether or not Jesus was the promised Messiah. I, I suspect he, he was still convinced that Jesus was the promised Messiah. I think his doubts were more about whether or not Jesus had been raised from the dead. And in Thomas's mind, if Jesus is still dead, then God has forsaken us. It almost makes it worse if he still believes that Jesus is the promised Messiah because that all the more highlights the point that God has forsaken us. If Jesus is not raised from the dead. The more that we are away from community, the more that we have doubts about whether or not God is for us or against us. Whether or not God is still with us or has forsaken us. And how is this cured? How, the, the more we're away, the more doubts we have about God and his character and his nature toward us. Well, how is that cured? By not being missing, like Thomas was. And we see that immediately following, verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand, put it into my side, stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. The greatest cure for doubt is the presence of Jesus, and Jesus always gathers with the gathered community, the church. No matter how fearful they are, no matter how, how much they're locking the doors to keep people out, no matter, I mean, all the things they were doing wrong, at least they gathered, and when they gathered, Jesus showed up. And every time they gathered after the resurrection in John's gospel, guess who shows up? Jesus. They gathered Jesus shows up. What's his point? Gather together, Jesus will show up. Jesus shows up. All Thomas had to do was, was be there. We mix Je- we, 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 all we have to do is mix. The call of Jesus. See, Jesus has called us to be something amazing. Those first section, the churches it was meant to be. I mean, that's an amazing calling, right? And, and I, I recognize, you know, frankly, we're far from that. That picture is way beyond where we are. But all we have to do is mix that call with faith, and we'll be transformed into that vision of Jesus. And one of the simplest ways to mix it with faith is to have just enough faith to show up just enough. That's all it takes. You know, maybe you got here today thinking, you know, I I really didn't want to be here, but I did it. I'm here. Good. You had just enough faith to show up. And guess what? Christ can work with that. How many times do we, whether it's a community group or whether it's a Sunday morning, we we either wake up or we get home from work and we're thinking to ourselves, I can't do this. I, I just can't do this. I just can't go. But then we, we, we somehow, we're either trained, uh, you know, we just, we just have this habit. This is what we do. And we had this conversation many times as we were raising our children. We were exhausted, co- coming home from a hospital, been there for, you know, 24 hours and this, that, and the other. And we, we just had to, to realize this is what we do. And we would discipline ourselves to show up. And how many times did we find we'd come on the way home We be saying to ourselves, Donna and I, man, the Lord really affected me tonight. Sure glad we decided to come. But think, we wouldn't have had that had we not been there, right? Sometimes that's all the faith I can muster, frankly. It's just to show up. But when I muster that faith, guess what? The promises of Christ begin to come true. They begin to take effect. How often... Do we find ourselves absent and not experiencing that grace? And we start experiencing doubts, and then the doubts lead to, well, why should I even bother showing up? And pretty soon it's a, it's a spiral down and out of that place of faith. See, it works the other way too. When the community gathers, we hear the word of Christ. And even when we don't realize it, we hear the word of Christ. And as long as we obey the word of Christ, even if we don't realize it, he transforms us. And I, and I base that. We're not going to go there, but chapter 21, there's a scene. There's a, a couple of really neat scenes, one big scene with a couple of parts. But the disciples are out fishing, right? They're gathered. And one of the neat things about that scene is they're all together. It points out that they're all together, but it doesn't tell us it was the first day of the week. And Jesus shows up. And I suppose because it wasn't the first day of the week, they didn't recognize him. <laughs> Had it been the first day, they'd have, they oh, there's Jesus. But here they are out in a boat long ways away, and you know, they're not expecting Jesus, but he shows up anyway. And they don't even know it's him. But he tells them to do something, and they do it, not even aware who's telling them to do it. And because they obey him, even though they don't know they're obeying him, a miracle happens. That's just so cool. But I'm not preaching that scene, so I'm not going to even talk about it. <laughs> the, the, the gathered community is a community in the presence of Christ, and the presence of Christ is grace that will transform us, the church, from what we are to what we were meant to be. Amen next week we'll we'll look more at the church as it often is and, we'll, and how we get from the church as it often is to the churches it was meant to be and some different terms probably, looking at different texts. But, but there's good news for us here. In John 13 through 17, they, they don't just describe the church as it was meant to be. They, they describe the church as Jesus actually calls it to be. And there's a difference between saying we were meant to be that and saying Jesus calls us to be that. And yes, we were meant to be that, but guess what? Jesus calls us to be that. And that calling comes with the power to accomplish now, yes, we must mix it with faith, but as you can see, it don't take a lot. Just showing up is sufficient. Imagine if we just mix a little more faith, what could happen, right? If just showing up is sufficient. And when we mix our faith, even as weak as, as Thomas' faith was, I mean, you know how weak his was, but he showed up the next time, and guess what? He was transformed. Now, he had weak faith. We all know that, right? Maybe you came today with weak faith. That's okay. You're here. And Christ is here to meet you. And in your weak faith, he will meet you. And turn your doubts to faith. Christ will strengthen our weak faith as we gather. I hope you've been able to open your deck chairs this morning and look behind as well as before us. When we look behind, we can see some real issues. What the church has been. In the case of John's gospel, we see it as being fearful and locking the doors to the outside world and doubting and full of unbelief. And next week we'll see other issues. But we must recognize those as we, as we look at what we are called to be. And realize that Christ will accomplish what he has set out to do in us. Despite what we've been, he'll accomplish what he set out to do in us. Amen? Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Oh Lord Jesus, we are grateful that you are present among us. You tell us that when we gather together in your name, you are present among us. And we have gathered today in your name. I pray that even now, even as we've been together in the hearing of the word, that you've dispelled doubts, that you've given us joy, some that came in desperate need of joy, I pray that you've given them joy and will give them joy and you declare your peace to them. And you do indeed send us on mission, empowered by your Spirit, into the world. Do all these things. Amen.